When was the last time you drank from a fire hose? Um, we're covering not one, not two, not three, not even four chapters, but five chapters in Exodus this morning. We're going to look at the plagues uh, before we get to the climactic final tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Um, a lot of ground to cover. We're going to move quickly. Uh, I do think we're going to get to all of it, um, but bear with me. This is really important. You know, this is one of those sections that I, I fear that some Christians are embarrassed of when God, you know, displays his wrath and judgment. But this is so important for understanding God's character, who he is. Amen? So, let's get into the word. Let me get a drink of water. Let me pray for the Lord's help. Father, it is our prayer together because of and through your son Jesus that we would indeed behold God your glory in your word through judgment and salvation and that our response would be to glorify you. Father, help me as we look at uh, this large section of text in your word. Help me to be faithful to your word and we pray, God, that you would indeed give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Incline our hearts to your word, to obey your word, to love your word, to see Christ in your word, and to follow him more passionately. Uh, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you are and all that you do. We thank you for your church, your blood-bought people. We thank you for this gathering, for this fellowship, and for this time together. Sanctify it, Lord, and use it for your glory and our growth and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a quote from a commentary. It's a short commentary on Exodus by T. Desmond Alexander. And the quote's not even from him. He's quoting R.C. Sproul. And uh, I think Sproul, his words, provide us with a really sweet commentary on chapters 7 to 11 in Exodus. But again, the title of my sermon, um, Salvation Through Judgment, uh, big idea, Christ is good news for hard hearts. Amen. Christ is good news for hard hearts. But let me read this, uh, this quote. It's about a paragraph, so bear with me. But this is from R.C. Sproul uh, in his book, Chosen by God. He writes, If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Perhaps that one maverick molecule will lay waste all the grand and glorious plans that God has made and promised to us. He writes, I remember my distress when I heard that Bill Vukovich, the greatest car driver of his era, was killed in a crash in the Indianapolis 500. The cause was later isolated in the failure of a cotton pin that cost 10 cents. Bill Vukovich had an amazing control of race cars. He was a magnificent driver, however, he was not sovereign. A part worth only a dime cost him his life. God doesn't have to worry about 10-cent cotton pins wrecking his plans. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign. God is God. Sorry, it's not a cotton pin. It's a cotter pin. You guys are probably like, y'all who know cars are like, dude, you're getting it wrong. A cotter pin. A 10-cent cotter pin. Cotton pin? That must be what those Washingtonians call it. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the purpose of the plagues. The purpose of the plagues. These are some of the most well-known chapters in the entire Old Testament. But what is actually going on in Exodus 7 to 11 with the plagues? What is the reason for the plagues? What do the plagues reveal about God? What's significant about their arrangement and their order? So the ten plagues, and we're going to look at nine this morning, but the ten plagues progress in intensity, with the first nine being arranged in three groups of three. Doug Stewart notes in his commentary on Exodus, the early plagues, the blood the frogs and the biting insects were relatively brief in duration, did not cause death, and affected mainly people's patience and convenience, though certainly severely. Plagues 4, 5, and 6, swarming insects, animal disease, and skin sores 
were much more harmful. The fifth killed off many livestock, and the sixth brought serious disease upon humans. Nothing to scoff at, right? The seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues, the hail, H-A-I-L, right, frozen rain, locusts, and darkness were even more severe. Uh, another scholar, Walt Kaiser, he acknowledges the three groups of three. He says the first three, one, two, three, this is actually really helpful. The first three, one, two, three, introduce irritations. The second set, four, five, and six, destructions. And the final set, seven, eight, and nine, death. And then the climactic plague, the plague of all plagues, is the tenth and final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. So what's the purpose of the plagues? You guys are like, oh, no. It's already worn out. We're good, Dave. We're good. What's the purpose of the plagues? The purpose of the plagues is so that people might know that God is Lord, both at the micro level and at the macro level, both in the present and in the future. And as we saw last week, Pharaoh's question in Exodus 5 2, do you remember his question? Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? sets up the rest of the narrative because God's about to answer that question and Pharaoh's not going to like it, is he? Who is the Lord? He's about to see who the Lord is. The plagues serve an epistemological purpose. What did that boy just say? <laughs> Epistemology refers to knowledge or what can be known. The purpose of the plagues is so that we might know. Everybody say no. Know that God is the Lord. God, through a series of plagues, will answer the question, who is the Lord? Not only for Pharaoh, and not only for Israel, but for us as well. Through the plagues, we see God's justice and his grace. We're going to see his grace. You're thinking, grace? Yes. Abundance of grace. We see his work of rescue through judgment. Exodus 7, 5. Okay, again, what is the purpose of the plague? So that we might know that God is what? He's Lord. Okay, so Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 7, 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. Exodus 9 14 to 16, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know, there it is again, you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What a beautiful statement. There's none like me in all the earth, God said. And you're going to know that through what? Through the, the plagues. For by now I have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. James Hamilton writes, God wants Pharaoh to know that there is no one else like God. He wants Pharaoh to see his power. He wants all the earth to know his name, to hear the tale of his saving and judging glory taking notes, you can write this down. I'll come back to it again and again. It's the, the series title, right? Glory. God's glory. Rescue. But again, God's glory in the book of Exodus. This theme of the global spread, the global spread of the glory of God moves from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So let me just take us on a little, I don't know, what would you call this? A quick survey. We'll go quick. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. The point there is, is as God's image bearers fill the earth and spread, his glory is going to what? It's going to spread globally. Exodus 19.6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is saying, as a priest is kind of a mediator connecting people to God, Israel, you as a nation are to connect the world to me, Right? Global focus. Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Again, I'm, I'm arguing here that there's this theme in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God means to spread his glory globally. 
Isaiah 11:9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me just read a couple more. Habakkuk 2.14, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then, of course, the Great Commission. What does Jesus commission his disciples to do? To make disciples of all nations. He wants his glory to spread to the nations. He wants, he wants people everywhere to know who he is. And then you get to the kind of this final climax in Revelation, Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God desires for his glory to go global. <laughs> and he will be glorified globally. And he calls us, church, to be a part of that work. Amen? We get to be a part of that work, namely to pursue his glory by spreading his gospel. Again, as we saw last week, tantamount to knowing the Lord is fearing the Lord, revering him, being in all of him as the one true God. And in that, when God is revered, when God is held in high esteem, when we are in awe of him, he is glorified. God reveals his glory so that we might glorify him and be in awe of him. This was Tim Chester's definition of the phrase, I am the Lord. He writes, I am the Lord is a declaration of God's control over people, nature, history, and gods, and a declaration that defiance is folly. And this is exactly what the Lord is bent on revealing through the plagues. Exodus 10.2, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know. That you might what? That you may know that I am the Lord. And we have to remember here, I mean, we, we think of knowledge. We, maybe you're thinking academic knowledge. That's not what this word means. Yavah in Hebrew refers to a personal, intimate knowledge. We see this in Joshua 2 with Rahab and the spies. Joshua 2, 8 to 10. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Rahab was spared because of her faith in the Lord. She even became a part of the genealogy of Jesus. That's pretty cool, right? God's purpose through the plagues was to make himself known so that others might believe and know him personally and relationally. One more thing here. The plagues further reveal God's judgment against sin. We see God's justice on display. What is the crime for which Pharaoh and the Egyptians are being punished? What did they do wrong? Recall Exodus 5.2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Remember, this was not a question of definition, but of defiance. Who is the Lord? I'm the Lord. That's what he thinks, foolishly, wrongfully. Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then we jump to Exodus 5.9. Oh, man, this is, this is heavy, both spiritually and physically. Let heavier work be laid on the men. Let, that's the physical heaviness. That their labor may be more, and pay no regard to lying words. Oh, who did he call a liar? About to get it, Pharaoh. About to get it. So what is the crime for which Pharaoh and the Egyptians are being punished? A blatant disregard for the one true God. God is punishing their sin of unbelief. God is punishing Pharaoh's disobedience. He has rejected God's word. He has called God a liar. It's obvious that Pharaoh and the Egyptians do not fear the Lord. Exodus 9.30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Oh, snap. 
I mean, just called him out. It's obvious you don't fear the Lord. Exodus 9.34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the, sun and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now, we do have instances where Pharaoh confesses his sin. That's Exodus 9.27 and Exodus 10.16. But it's shown to be what? Insincere. Pharaoh's response is comparable to the worldly grief Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, insincere grief, unbiblical grief, non-fear of God grief, produces death. So worldly guilt is concerned with consequences, whereas godly guilt is concerned with the Lord's glory and reputation. Now, because of religious pluralism, which, what, what is that? Pluralism. Very simply, religious pluralism teaches that all roads lead to God. If you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, because of that, because of postmodernism, this idea that there's no objective truth, truth is whatever you make it, Grant, right? Well, if, as Christians, we know that's not true. That, that's at loggerheads with the biblical worldview, but because that way of thinking is so pervasive in our world today, many, and you probably know some of them, stand aghast <gasps> at Exodus 7 to 11. Why would God do that? Why would he punish these poor Egyptians? The world would say, let them be, God. If worshiping those false gods, lowercase g, again, they're no gods at all, but if, if worshiping those false gods makes them happy, then what, what harm is caused? The world wants us to think that way, right? May it never be. Because God alone deserves honor and glory. Amen? God alone deserves honor and glory. That's the issue here. God is a jealous God. I explained it to Clark this week what it means. I mean, there's a good jealous and there's a bad jealous. And with God, it's a good jealous because he alone is worthy of our lives, our allegiance. Is true? And God will be glorified. I mean, what do we see in Philippians 2? One day, every knee will bow down. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. But it means that one day, everyone will acknowledge that he is the true Lord, and they are not. And Pharaoh's going to learn that right now. He's about to learn it. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are living in opposition to the one true God. They're giving glory to the demonic realm rather than to Yahweh. And God, because he is good. Everybody say, because he's good. He's got to judge sin. He's got to judge it. Otherwise, he's not good. God must judge sin. And idolatry is the gravest sin of all. If God doesn't judge sin, then he's not just. And if he's not just, then he's not good. And if he's not good, then he's not worthy. And he's not God. You understand? So much hangs on the plagues. They're really important. And what they reveal about God's character. One more time. If God doesn't judge sin, then he's not just. And if he's not just, then he's not good. And if he's not good, he's not worthy. And if he's not worthy, he's not God. So much hangs on the plagues. Let's talk about the plagues and the providence of God. Exodus 9.29. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hell, so that you may know that the earth it's the Lord's. Whoa! The earth is the Lord's. Now, again, if you know the culture, that was a sweeping statement. The plagues reveal God's providence, his sovereign control over all things. He made all things. Amen? And therefore, all things belong to him. And not only that, but he powerfully sustains all things. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Without the sovereign, providential control of Jesus over everything, the world as we know it would go spinning into chaos, right? But it doesn't. Why? Because he holds it in his hand. <coughs> Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is from the ESV. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only does the Lord exercise his sovereign control over the cosmos, 
but over his image bearers as well, as seen in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We'll come back to that because that's a tough statement. He hardened his heart? What's going on there? We have 11 signs and 10 plagues. It's not meant to confuse you. What? We have 11 signs and 10 plagues. Readers tend to start with the Lord turning the water in the Nile River to blood. But that's not the first sign. Let's begin with the first sign. The first sign is unique. It's not categorically a plague, but it prepares us for the plagues. It serves as more of an introduction to the plagues and God's great act of rescue. How so? Exodus 7, 8 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a what? A serpent, snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff. This is so cool. Before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, listen, the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. Whatever that means. We'll come back to that too. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now here's the kicker. You ready for this? This is one of those woe moments. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And you think Pharaoh would have realized something there. I'm in trouble, right? I'm in trouble. Still, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So what does this first sign, not categorically a plague, but the first sign reveal about God, and what does it prepare us for? First, when Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs of the magicians of Egypt, it shows that the Lord is superior and sovereign. And again, this should have been a warning to Pharaoh. Second, this is cool, it pointed to the greater judgment to come. The verb to swallow in Hebrew, galah, galah, it's almost like, you know, galah. I mean, you kind of make that noise when you swallow. Maybe you don't, I do. Probably because I try to swallow too much. Haley's always getting, take smaller bites. Don't. My kids are always like, you're done, Dad? Yeah, what you been doing? The, the same verb to swallow, galah, is used in Exodus 15, 12. To describe the Egyptians' fate of being swallowed up by the Red Sea. Isn't that interesting? Same verb. The image of swallowing is often used in Scripture in the context of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is what? Swallowed up in victory. So what do we learn here about God? He's just. He's sovereign. He's supreme. And he saves. What's the takeaway here? practice step, if you will. Let me digress. Let me go back. I want to tell you a story. I had a, a student in Africa. I taught an Old Testament class. It was Old Testament survey. I had to cover Genesis to Malachi in a whole semester. Every class was three hours long, and we were booking it. And I remember this one student said, Chris, where is the application? And I said, brother, what do you mean? And I think this, I had to talk to him, and I think what he was looking for is like, you know, hey, be like David, or be like Samuel, and uh, kind of making those characters, those historical figures, the hero of the text. And they're not, right? They're not. I said, brother, this is the application. He's like, what are you doing? It's worship. Because in Scripture, God reveals his marvelous character, his faithfulness, his goodness, his power, and we are meant to respond in awe and worship. So worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. The plagues reveal the utter foolishness of idol worship. Smash your idols. Smash them this morning. Get them off the throne of your heart and give God the glory. Amen? Again, the, the plagues reveal God's character and his character reveals his glory. And this so that we might glorify him. God is glorified through his judgment. Let's talk about salvation through judgment. That sounds oxymoronical. <laughs> salvation through judgment? We tend to think of those as two separate things, right? I mean, the wicked are going to be judged, and the righteous in Christ are going to be saved, but salvation through judgment, I'm lost. Well, in his book, and this is a great book, by the way, but it's a, it's a heavy book. It's a big book. It's called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. What a title. 
God's glory in salvation through judgment. It's by James Hamilton. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. He argues that salvation through judgment is the dominant theme in the Bible that moves God's story of salvation forward. In his book, he locates the theme of God's glory and salvation through judgment in every book of the Bible. It's, it's a good read. But where do we see this in Exodus? Hamilton writes, in Egypt, Israel has been saved through the judgment of the plagues. Exodus 6.6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I, listen, here it is. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'll redeem you through great acts of what? Judgment. So salvation through judgment. Exodus 7, 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, what unfolds in Exodus 7 to 11 is to be understood as a contest, not between God and Pharaoh, but between the Lord and the gods of Pharaoh, which are actually no gods at all. More specifically, between God and the powers of darkness, which lay behind these gods. So there's an interesting phrase. This is really cool. This is one of those things like, remember last week, we got into some Hebrew grammar, past tense verbs. Right? Talking about future events. What's going on there? When God promises, this goes done, right? When God says, I'm going to do it, even though it hadn't happened yet, you can translate it in the future tense because it's as good as done. I'm sorry, you can translate it in the past tense because it's as good as done. This is kind of a nugget like that. It's pretty cool, I think. So, we have the three groups of three, plagues one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, and nine. In, in each set, the first plague there's this oft-repeated phrase that we've got to pay attention to, okay? So we find it in plague 1, 4, and 7. So listen carefully. Open up yours. Go to Pharaoh. This is God speaking. Go to Pharaoh. No, again, whenever we read the Bible, it's God speaking. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. <laughs> Who cares? You better care. This is cool, okay? So as he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And then we go to Exodus 8.20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So Pharaoh goes down to the Nile River in the morning. What is Pharaoh doing? Is he getting a wash? Is he fishing? Donnie, maybe. Is he going for a swim? I don't think so. It's most likely that he was going down to the river to pay homage to the gods of the Nile. He was likely worshiping and calling out for help. He was praying. Philip Ryken writes, It is easy to imagine Pharaoh blessing the waters in the name of Hapi, the god of the flood, or giving thanks every morning to Hanum, the guardian of the Nile. Now, who else comes down to the water? Ooh. Who else comes down to the waters of the Nile each morning? Moses! It's a showdown. Somebody say, showdown. <laughs> Actually, don't say that. It's a showdown. I can't, I can't do it. The... Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Moses comes to Pharaoh, staff in hand, which was a symbol of divine authority. And he declares, thus says the Lord. So again, we can assume that Pharaoh is speaking to his gods, which are no gods at all. And then down comes Moses, and he has his staff in hand, sign of divine authority. And he says, thus says the Lord. Each time, this is so cool, each time the impotence of Pharaoh's gods is revealed. And yet he continues to reject divine revelation. This shows us that God is bringing to fulfillment, not fully yet, but the promise of Genesis 3.15. That evil will be vanquished. God is greater than evil, amen? He promises to do something about it. We see this throughout Scripture. All these are pointers to the cross, okay, where evil was definitively dealt with. But think about the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3. Fast forward to the Gospels, and what is Jesus often doing? He's casting out demons. 
And in Luke 11, it says, Jesus says, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God is upon you. The Lord, through the plagues, is revealing the utter foolishness of pagan worship. The signs, these signs, these plagues are intended to humiliate the Egyptians and their gods and to demonstrate Yahweh's superiority. A quick word on the Egyptian deities. And we'll talk about the magicians. I mentioned that earlier, the magicians of Egypt. Who or what stood behind these powers? Let's start with the Egyptian deities and, and the correlation between them and the plague. So Exodus 12, 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and, here it is, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He's going to judge the gods of Egypt. James Boyce writes, in order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered around the three great natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile River, the land, and the sky. Boyce goes on to say, It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in this historic battle follow this three-force pattern. All the plagues are directed against these three areas, demonstrating that God is what? He is superior. Who is the Lord? Bro, you about to find out. And he's the only one, Amen. There is no other. Recall we learned about the Lord's name revealed in Exodus 3, the burning bush, right? I am, which can be translated as what? I cause to be. I am the creator. God reveals himself as the creator of all that there is and therefore as the true sovereign of the universe. He alone is God and this is revealed through the plagues. Now, what about the magicians? Who are these cats? Were you intrigued? I mean... The first sign they replicate, the first two plagues they replicate, what's going on here? So they're introduced in Exodus 7, 11 to 12. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But what happened? Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The magicians of Egypt are able to imitate the first two plagues, which are what? Water turned to blood and toads, frogs. However, their impotence is brought to light in Exodus 8.18. Listen to this. The magicians tried. They tried. Hey, E for effort, right? They tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now, this is hugely important. It's a reminder, yes, the, the evil one is powerful. You'd be foolish not to think so, right? He is powerful, but unlike the Lord, his power is limited. It's not absolute. And he's not in control. It's true. He's not in control. Recall the words of John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, some have argued for a natural explanation for the magician's ability to replicate the first sign, right, staff to snake in the first two plays. These guys were charlatans. They were snake charmers. Possibly, but I think the more probable explanation is that they were operating by the power of who? Satan. Again, behind the gods of the Egyptians and the magicians of Egypt were the powers of darkness, Satan himself. Therefore, what God does in Egypt is to be seen as a grand victory over Satan. And what's ironic is that the magicians are the first to acknowledge God's power. Exodus 8, 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Which means what? We in trouble. We in trouble. I've seen in Exodus 9, 11, their dark arts could not protect them against the wrath of God, the one true Lord. Exodus 9, 11. And the magicians, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The second thing here I want us to see is separation. Separation. 
God protects his people from his judgment. In him, they are sheltered. What a clear, beautiful picture of the cross, a pointer to the cross. In Christ, because of the cross, we who trust in him are sheltered from the wrath to come. Amen? And the purpose of this separation, again, who separated? Who spared during the plagues? Whose crops and animals are not affected? Israel, right? The purpose of this separation was to reveal the power, the sovereignty, the favor, and the faithfulness of God. Exodus 8, 22-23, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. Somebody say, God's got us. He's got us, right? In him, we are secure. In him, we are protected against the wrath to come. The second point is this, a hard heart. This is important, a hard heart. It's a big theme, especially in these first few chapters. I think this is likely one of the most difficult images in Exodus. So the question is, does the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart, or does Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the answer is, yes. Yes. But to be sure, the Lord does harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, what's the purpose of this hardening? The Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. What's the purpose? Exodus 10, 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. That, everybody say that. Here's the purpose statement. That I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? So that others might know that he is what? The Lord. And not Pharaoh. Who's the Lord? God. God. And again, the Lord promised to do this back in Exodus 4, verse 21. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. (laughs) What happens after each sign or plague? Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? The Lord does this so that he might continue to manifest his power and glory through more what? More signs, because more signs means what? More glory. And more glory means more people knowing. And more people knowing means more people glorifying him. That's why. But what does this phrase mean? What does a hardened heart refer to? Man, that dude's heart is so hard. Cool. No, we don't. It's not a good thing. We, we know that much, right? A hard heart, no matter what culture you belong to, is not a good thing. Man, I want a hard heart like that. Ooh. No, that's stupid. None of us thinks that way. So we can obviously say a hard heart's a bad thing, but what does it mean that the heart was hard? Alexander writes, For ancient Israelites, a heart that is hard, heavy, or strong is resolute or stubborn. Now, we know, because the Bible tells us so, that Pharaoh's heart, as well as our hearts, are naturally what? Hard, stubborn, and opposed to God. So, was Pharaoh a sinner? Did Pharaoh have a naturally hard heart? Yes. Exodus 8.15. But when, when Pharaoh saw that there was a, res- a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. Pharaoh remained resolute in his purpose to keep Israel under his maniacal rule. Now, there are moments, and I, I mentioned this earlier, there are moments in the narrative when Pharaoh seems to come to his senses. He acknowledges his sin and repents, but then his heart is quickly hardened. (laughs) Pharaoh has heart problems. He does. Tim Chester writes, Pharaoh refuses to listen because Pharaoh hardens his heart. But it is also true that Pharaoh refuses to listen because the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. We have to take both of these perspectives seriously. Pharaoh determines Pharaoh's actions, and God determines his actions. To put it another way, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. I like that. Alexander adds, ironically, God even strengthens Pharaoh's resolve, enabling the Egyptian king to remain faithful to his own inner convictions 
even though these are against God and the Israelites. This was God's will. This was God's will, his purpose, and it would not be thwarted. Here we see God's sovereignty on display. Listen, I, I hope when you, when you read these texts, when you hear this story, you're not just thinking, oh, man, that's Sunday school stuff. No, this is incredible. God is showing us, in a sense, he's flexing. God can do that. He's flexing. He's showing us his character, his power. There's no one like him, amen? We should be in awe. This should not be just casual. Come on, bro. Like, we covered this in Sunday school. I don't care. I did too. And when we see this, that God is in control, we should be made small, amen? When we see how big he is, we must understand that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart wasn't just something that God foresaw, but something that he planned and purposed for his glory and the good of his people. Paul references this episode in Romans to illustrate God's sovereign control over even evil to accomplish his saving purposes. This is Romans 9, 17 to 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Tom Schreiner writes, God installed Pharaoh as ruler and hardened his heart so that his own saving power and glorious name would be spread throughout the whole world. God does what God does for his good purposes. Amen? God's going to do what God's going to do, and you can't stop God's plans. I used to say that all the time, and two ladies at our church in Washington made me a shirt. And they didn't plan that. They both gave me a shirt and they put that on there. They're like, oh, that's cool. Again, this is consistently seen throughout Scripture. One thanks to the story of Joseph, right? Genesis, what, 37 to 50? Or the ultimate example, the cross of Christ. Acts 2.23, Peter highlights this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did it, but it was according to the definite plan of God. God is sovereign in all of this, right? This didn't surprise God. This was God's plan. Now, again, what did this, let's get some into the cultural milieu. What, what did this mean in Egyptian culture? This hardening, was it a good thing to have a hard heart, do you think? Do you think the Egyptians praised this? No, they didn't. Riken notes, if Pharaoh had realized how hard his heart was, he would have been terrified. The Egyptians believed that the heart was the essence of the person and thus the key to eternal life. Many of their temples and tombs depict a heart being weighed on the scales of justice. The meaning of this message is explained in the Book of the Dead, found at the palace of Anubis, in which a man named Ani enters the throne room of the gods for judgment. At the front stands the balance of truth on which the death god Anubis will weigh the dead man's heart. Anubis calls for Ani's heart to be weighed against the feather of righteousness. His eternal destiny stands in the balance. If his heart is too heavy... He will be condemned for his sins and thrown to the voracious monster. <laughs> we call that hogwash, right? But that's what they believed. So even according to their own worldview, Pharaoh was in trouble. Thankfully, our, and as Christians, our ability to face the judgment of God isn't dependent upon our righteousness. If it was to be in trouble, whose righteousness is it dependent on? Christ's. Jesus Christ. So what is the only hope for a hard heart? Again, what was the big idea? Jesus is good news for hard hearts. And what do we have naturally, inherently, hard hearts? Romans 8, 7, for the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then we have the promise in Ezekiel 36. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. The promise of the gospel is the promise of a new heart. A teachable, pliable heart. Paul alludes to this in the next few verses in Romans 8. Romans 8, 9, and 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. But, everybody say but. Even Christians must be on guard 
against a hard heart. It's true. We got to. The writer of Hebrews warns believers against the hardening effects of sin. This is Hebrews 3.13. He writes, but exhort one another every day. How often? Every day. Every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need the word of God. And specifically the body of Christ exhorting us with the word of God in order to make war on and put to death our sin. Now this is cool. As the story progresses in Exodus, it becomes more and more obvious that Pharaoh is not Lord. He thought he was. We thought we were, right? But it's not true. (laughs) He is portrayed, if you read these chapters carefully, which I hope you'll go back and do, he is portrayed as dishonest, right? He may, oh, yeah, you can go. No, change my Capricious, which means he's changeable, right? Thankfully, God's not that way. So, again, he's revealed early on in the narrative as dishonest, capricious, and worried. Does, does God get worried? Say it in Spanish. No, of course not. And his own people begin to doubt his leadership. That's Exodus 9, 20 and 21. They even plead with Pharaoh To let the people go. Like, hey, bro, you're not being wise. You know, let them go. That's Exodus 10.7. The message of Exodus 7 to 11 is that God is Lord, the true Lord of all. Amen? He is Lord, the true Lord of all. Here's the practice step. God is sovereign. His plans will not be thwarted. Therefore, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Rest in him. Rest in him. Here's the last thing, and I'm going to move quickly. How does Exodus 7 to 11 point to Jesus? Number three, how does this all point to Jesus? A major theme in Exodus that we've located is God's salvation through judgment. The climax of God's salvation through judgment is seen where? Where do we see salvation through judgment? The cross. The cross. Christ became sin for us at the cross and was punished, judged in our place. Amen? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was judged and he was cursed for us and through that salvation. Amen? As with the Exodus, so with Jesus, God would provide salvation through judgment. And not only that, but through the cross, the powers of darkness were defeated. They were judged. This is Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As with the Exodus, so with Jesus, God would humiliate and defeat the powers of darkness by the cross, by the cross where God's judgment would fall upon Jesus, the Savior, would draw all people, the world, to himself. The sign, again, what was the purpose of the plague? So that people might what? So they might know. The sign of Jesus was so that the world might know that he is what? The Savior. John 12, 32, and I, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, referring to the cross, will draw all people to myself. Ooh. As with the Exodus, so with Jesus. God will make himself known through his mighty signs. The greatest of these being the cross and the empty tomb. And what we're going to see more clearly next week is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection represents the new or second Exodus. If you read Isaiah, really Isaiah 40 to 55, there's this promise of a new Exodus. What God did in the past, he's going to do again. Right? I mean, the Exodus was the great salvation event of God's people. But God was going to do it again. Where? When? Come on. Where? When? At the cross. Amen? And finally again, Christ is good news for hard hearts. He came to give us new hearts. The gospel not only provides forgiveness, but transformation as well. If we're forgiven but unchanged, what's going to happen? Nothing. What's the good news of the gospel? It provides not only forgiveness but 
Transformation. The Spirit gives us new hearts with new desires so that we can follow our new king with his new people. It's true. Here's the conclusion. If you got nothing else, you better have gotten this or you're dead. Not to me, but you're just not listening. You'll never be dead to me. I love you all, but God takes sin seriously. You can't read the plays, Exodus 7 to 11, and argue otherwise. God takes sin seriously. God punishes sin because God cares about his glory. God desires to be known. God is sovereign. God graciously provides salvation for his people. He shelters his people from his wrath, which is ultimately seen at the cross of Christ. In Christ, we are forgiven and shielded from the wrath to come. So here's the final practice step. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Look to him for rescue from wrath to come. Now listen, there's a day coming. Are you, are you aware of the day coming? My birthday? I'm not talking about your birthday. July 4th's fun. I'm not talking about that either. What day is coming? The day of the Lord. There is coming a day of judgment. And only those who have trusted in Jesus, only those who have turned from their sin and turned to the glorious Savior and said, I'm in, you're mine, and I'm yours, only those will be shielded from the wrath to come. And what's the duration of that wrath? Is it a one-time? It's forever separation from God in hell. But the good news is this. If you run to Jesus, if you turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus, your Lord and Savior. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose again, what does the Bible promise? What does God promise us in his word? Forgiveness and a forever relationship with God. Amen? So run to Jesus. Look to him for rescue from the wrath to come. Run to Jesus. He's worthy. Did you see that this morning? He's worthy. Who's Lord? Us? No. God. God. Let's pray. God, we are in awe. I am in awe of who you are and what you've done. In these substantial chapters in Exodus, God, we learn that you are just. We learn that you are gracious and merciful. We learn that you're faithful. We learn that you're holy. And we learn that you're sovereign. Father, in your word, we behold your glory so that we might glorify you. And I pray that all of us in this room would leave today with a greater desire and a greater commitment to glorify you in all things. And I pray that we would leave with a greater desire and a greater commitment to help others know what we know, that in Jesus there is rescue from the wrath to come. In Jesus there is forgiveness. In Jesus a relationship with the one true God can be held and enjoyed forever. So Father, we thank you for the gospel. May we be a gospel-shaped people and a gospel-proclaiming people for your glory and the good of others. And all God's people said, in the matchless name of Jesus, amen.